Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Today on GEMCAST, I am very excited to introduce a guest who is new to GEMCAST, but not new to the various publications that might show up in your email or on your doorstep. And that is Cameron Gettle. Cameron is at Yale University up in New Haven or New Haven, depending on where you're from, in Connecticut. And he has become well-known for a number of things. One is in geriatrics, and then the other is in the ED emergency physician workforce studies and recent winner of the ASEP, what was it, the Rising Star Research? I don't know what it was called, but some sort of major award. Congratulations, Cameron, and thanks for being on GEMCAST. Thanks, Christina, for having me. Delighted to be here. Always admired GEMCAST. So thanks. Well, thank you. And I have to say this about you. There's two things that if people say them to me, I pretty much just immediately pass out from astonishment and happiness, which is what I'll say to you, which is that I have been following your career and I'm familiar with your work and very impressed. So delighted to have you here. And today, and Cameron did not pass out, listeners, don't worry, he's still with us. <laughs> today, we're going to be talking about a recent article that came out in Annals of EM, which is, of course, on a geriatric topic near and dear to my heart. And that is looking at a comparison between geriatric EDs and non geriatric EDs. So, just to back up, for listeners who may not have been familiar with geriatric EDs. We've talked about this a number of times with Chris Carpenter and with others, but a five plus years ago, ASEP developed the Geriatric ED Accreditation Program. And it was based on lots of prior work that was done creating the geriatric ED guidelines among other things. And the idea was that we wanted to have a set of criteria that determines what is good geriatric ED care. And then we want to have a process to accredit to say, yes, this ED is meeting the criteria. But then, of course, the question is, does it matter? Is it impacting care at all? So, Cameron, I'm so glad that you did this research study. But tell us a little bit about yourself. What made you interested in geriatric research? Yeah, thanks again, Christina. Uh, excited to be here. I think first for me, it, it was two things. It was personal and professional is what got me interested in geriatric emergency care. First, I was a when I was a medical student, my wife, Alicia, her grandmother had congestive heart failure. She was hospitalized and she had care transitions. Care transitions is one of my, one of my interests. And so she left the hospital, went to a rehab facility. Some certain medications fell off. Her CHF exacerbated, worsened. She was scheduled to get a hip arthroplasty, ultimately could not get that. Her quality of life suffered and ultimately she passed away without being able to get the surgery. And so I saw sort of the, the detriment of poor care transitions and sort of things falling off. Fast forward than a few years when I was a resident, I was a second year resident. I was working a lot of afternoon, evening shifts, and inevitably we'd have a lot of patients come from nursing homes and it wasn't entirely clear what happened or the acute reason that they sought care today. EMS crew wouldn't always be able to tell us the continuity of care form was oftentimes lacking as well. The patient may have cognitive impairment and so they couldn't necessarily articulate exactly what happened or what, what the reason was. Family maybe was out of town and wouldn't know. 
And then last, the you call the facility and inevitably staffing had changed and sort of a new a new person was on shift. And so there was this big black box. It ultimately ended up, you know, more lengthy workups of these people, maybe hospitalizations that weren't aligned with their interests. So sort of that sort of care transitions on that professional level, sort of coupled with what I experienced personally, really has had a sustaining impact on why I'm interested in the work. I like that it has both that personal and professional connection, how you can bring something that happened in your or your family's life and then make that a part of your career in medicine. And that's something pretty unique. And if you want to, listener, hear more about care transitions, that is the topic of the last GEMcast episode with Bill Magidson. So please go back and listen to that. So let's dive in. Conceptually, we've got these EDs around the country now, over 450 that are designated as geriatric EDs. How could they potentially meaningfully impact the care of an older patient? Yeah, so so you mentioned earlier about ASAP's JETA process and the criteria levels one, two, and three status that was initiated in 2018. And that was preceded a few years prior in 2014 by the geriatric ED guidelines. And those guidelines identified several policies, systems to implement, and sort of best practices that could really influence a patient's trajectory and their outcomes. And I'll just touch on a few of those, but things like staffing and administration, thinking about physician and nursing leadership. Another area is education. So there's certain training requirements for clinical issues that are, that are more specific to the geriatric population that geriatric ED practitioners should pursue. Protocols such as delirium screening, so processes for improving care transitions, and then also thinking about like medic- medication reconciliation pathways. So those are other things that could be put in place and how that could influence care. And then additionally, things like quality improvement programs. So are, are geriatric EDs reviewing charts monthly? Do they have equipment and supplies in the emergency department, such as assistive ambulatory devices? And so if we think about some of those sort of areas and, and if we put those processes in, in place, then conceptually, geriatric EDs have been shown in the past to avoid unnecessary hospitalizations and allow older adults to continue living safely in the community. One of the ones I mentioned was delirium screening. And so maybe having delirium recognized a little bit earlier could have the older adult receive appropriate treatment earlier and delay their overall hospitalization length of stay. And then also finally thinking about potentially inappropriate medications. And if we can discontinue them in the emergency department, then we can maybe reduce adverse events such as falls. So those are sort of the ways that I think geriatric emergency departments and the processes and systems that they uh, impart can ultimately improve patient outcomes. My alliterative triad for this is staff systems and structures. I keep trying to make that happen, but so far it has not caught on. But st- having the right staffing and staff training, having the right systems and protocols, and then structures, meaning not necessarily that you build a $20 million new geriatric ED, but that you have the equipment, the materials, or Don Malady's triad is people, places, and protocols. So there's lots of ways that having a geriatric ED designation could improve care, and could maybe lead to lower lengths of stay. Although I will say this is going to be a very heterogeneous group of EDs. When we look at level one EDs, they have had to implement, you know, 25 different care processes, have social work case management, dedicated dashboards of their information. And a level three is going to be much more modest changes. They may have implemented one or two protocols but it may not have anything to do with delirium. It could be a UTI reduction protocol. 
So it's going to be a heterogeneous group of EDs. Before your study, what was known about patient outcomes in geriatric EDs? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Christine, about the heterogeneity of this sample. We'll get into that a little bit. But what has been shown previously are really a lot of local initiatives of sort of early observational single center emergency department studies. So I'm just going to highlight a few here. Yula Wang et al., they identified that they had improved cost outcomes among those older adults who saw a transitional care nurse or social work as part of the JediWise program. So that was one. And again, sort of a local initiative. Scott Dresden and team identified 608 emergency department visits across three emergency departments and looked at 30-day readmissions. And, and two had reductions in readmissions and one did not. And that was after a transitional care nurse introduction. And then Jill Huded as well did a, a VA study of uh, 724 older adults who received intervention called the Jerry Vet, and that included geriatric screens and care coordination, and that resulted in increased referrals to home-based primary care, as well as reductions in ED admission. So that's sort of the initiatives, sort of the foundation with which we operated in sort of thinking about this study. And then finally, a year or a year and a half before me, Mara Kennedy looked at in annals a piece, sort of the reach of geriatric EDs nationally, and that was published in 2022. And at that time, 225 geriatric EDs were accredited. And, and to your point earlier, the vast majority of those were level three, so had certain things in place, but not, you know, all the bells and whistles that a level one would have. Which brings us now to your work. Can you share what data you assessed and then what were your primary outcomes? Yeah, definitely. So we had, we use data, ASAP has a clinical emergency data registry, a CEDR, so CEDR, and that helps clinicians collect and report quality data to Medicare. So we worked with ASAP, we partnered with them, we got access to this data, and that had data on uh, encounter level data for nearly a thousand emergency departments in 2021. And that included over 18 million emergency department visits. And the ED visit level data that we had was we had patient characteristics, we had ICD diagnoses, we had insurance payer status, ED disposition, and ultimately ED billing codes. For this work, we grouped patients into sort of several buckets based on their age. So 64 to 74, 75 to 84, 85 and older. And then we also used a reference comparison group of those 45 to 64. And then we had all those emergency departments within the CEDAR, and then we identified if they were a geriatric EDU or not based on a publicly available list from ASAP. ASAP on their website has a, a list of all those EDs that are, that are accredited or have been accredited. And in the analysis, after looking at those sites that had complete data and excluding others for, for missingness, we found that 30, there were 38 geriatric EDs that we looked at, and we matched those to 152, so a four-to-one match of non-geriatric EDs that also reported data to CEDAR. And we matched to make to make sure these sites were comparable and that we were gonna we were going to get results that were comparable. We weren't comparing apples to oranges per se. We matched EDs on teaching status, freestanding ED status, region of the country, ED visit volume, urbanicity, and then the proportion of visits that that were the ED that were among those older than 65. And, and the last point then, the work that we looked at, our outcomes looked at how frequently are certain diagnoses being identified in, in these emergency department visits. So, so things like the common geriatric syndromes, the four ones like fall, UTI, dementia, and then delirium or alter mental status. 
And then the final outcomes that we looked at were process outcomes. So things like emergency department length of stay, discharge rates, and 72-hour re revisit rates as well. So what did you find? Well, among those 38 geriatric EDs and 152 non-geriatric EDs, we, we had over, I think it was 6.4 million emergency departments. So we had a, a pretty good size sample. And for the first outcomes that I mentioned was diagnosis rates. We found that geriatric EDs had higher diagnosis rates for three of the four geriatric syndromes that I mentioned in comparison to encounter seen at non-geriatric EDs. The only one that was not, not significant was falls, which was the same, similar rates for geriatric EDs and non-geriatric EDs. For the other outcomes for ED length of stay, across all age categories, the, the median ED site level length of stay was lower at geriatric EDs. And then the discharge rates, we actually found similar discharge rates between geriatric EDs and non-geriatric EDs for populations that were particularly 65 to 74. And that was approximately 65 to 70% were discharged at both at different types of EDs. And then discharge rates were also slightly higher in non-geriatric EDs for the other aged populations. One thing to, to mention as you sort of dig into the, the discharge rates among the geriatric syndromes of interest, I thought interesting was the discharge rates for delirium and altermental status, it was on the order of 40 to 50%, particularly for non-geriatric ED. So it was considerably higher than geriatric ED. So an interesting finding that is worth further evaluation, I think. So key findings to me were that the geriatric EDs are making these diagnosis of syndrome-related diagnoses like delirium and dementia more frequently. But then an interesting finding that you mentioned was length of stay and that it was shorter at geriatric EDs. And this is where, in my mind, the heterogeneity really comes in. Because I could see, if you had asked me a priori, will geriatric EDs have shorter length of stay or longer length of stay? You could truly make an argument either way. And I bet if we looked at you know, a pre-post of each individual geriatric ED and said, is your length of stay shorter or longer now that you've become a geriatric ED and implemented these care processes, you could make an argument for either. As an example, in one of our, our site that was a level two geriatric ED, we implemented a physical therapy consult for patients during business hours who were at falls risk. And that increases our length of stay, but provides better care in theory. So you could imagine a good argument for why geriatric EDs could have a longer length of stay, but also maybe a shorter length of stay. If you have more resources, more case management, then maybe you can get the patient home safely more quickly. Yeah, I think, Christine, I think the the length of stay sort of argument that you make, it, I think it could go either way. And we did see lower, it being lower in geriatric EDs compared with non-geriatric EDs. And, and, you know, you sort of mentioned about those streamlined approaches in case management, maybe also nursing assessments, maybe diagnostic testing, maybe support services that are present. You know, if someone doesn't need to stay in ED observation or be admitted to the hospital and board, maybe they can go home quicker and their ED length of stay can sort of be driven down in some of these geriatric ED sites. It's also possible that the decreased ED lengths of stay, you know, if a site doesn't have boarding where a clinician might recognize that an individual isn't fit for discharge, they need to be evaluated in the hospital. And so that, that evaluation and treatment can be considered continued upon hospitalization. And so maybe EDs, those geriatric EDs sort of recognize that quicker. Mm. 
were the changes that you found or which changes that you found were statistically significant? Yeah, the most of the findings we did were were simply descriptive. And so it was a little bit, we didn't necessarily comment on statistical significance. And plus a lot of these, a lot of the process outcomes, these last three that I mentioned about length of stay, about discharge rates, about 72 hour revisits, they were all done at the ED site level. So that reduces our power a little bit, but we thought that that was the best way to sort of look at those specific outcomes as opposed to the diagnosis rates. That's sort of, we can do that at the individual encounter level. But that was, you know, if we had a, a median ED length of stay, you know, that was, we did not look at all individual encounters and sort of put them all in a line. We looked at, okay, what was the length of stay, the median length of stay for this site, and then compared it for all 200. So, so more descriptive in that regard. And I'm actually surprised that you found the changes that you did, just given that it was largely level three geriatric EDs. And there's so much heterogeneity, as we mentioned there, where one level three ED might implement delirium screening, another might implement falls reduction. So I'm actually impressed that there were these differences that you saw. I think that that is an important finding and one that we allude to in our discussion. And Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Kevin Weiss's editorial as well suggested that the majority of geriatric EDs in our analytic sample and nationally are level three. And maybe that indicates sort of interest and entry level structures, but not sort of the bigger organizational infrastructure and resources to really implement complex interventions that influence the studied sort of process outcomes here. So I think, you know, if we can get more level current level three geriatric EDs to level twos and level ones and sort of do subsequent analysis to sort of look at that, maybe that needle will move a little bit more. If you were to make an educated guess. What do you think are the main things that contributed to the outcomes that you saw? I think, I think diagnosis rates, I think there's a chance that geriatric EDs have, have sort of increased awareness from that education, from the standardized screening processes. Falls were sort of unique, that they were sort of similar across geriatric ED and, and non-geriatric EDs. And you had sort of mentioned earlier that that was sort of believable. And I think what you were referring to may have been sort of, there's sort of a broader sort of national focus on fall screening, on, on identification and treatment. And that sort of permeated emergency medicine culture regardless. And so a fall is a fall is a fall. That's a diagnosis. A, a geriatric ED necessarily isn't going to differ upon that. So I think that's one reason why falls maybe didn't differ. ED length of stay, you know, it, it's also possible that sort of streamlined approaches in nursing assessments and diagnostic testing and support services were present in some of these geriatric EDs, EDs that reduced that length of stay. I think that that's one, one possibility. And then discharge rates w was interesting. And, and we commented on discharge rates just because there were a little bit of limitations with admission or transfer or observation care. And so discharge was ultimately the cleanest, which is why we, why we presented that. But it may, may be due to the fact partly because the analyses were matched, but they weren't able to be risk adjusted, which, which potentially removes some of that ED visit level or ED site level confounders. And then a second possibility is also that the lower discharge, modestly lower discharge rates among geriatric EDs, it actually might reflect high geriatric observation care in which additional testing is completed and then ultimately they get discharged, but it's sort of initially observation care. And so I think that that was one thing. And finally, there were a little bit 
different groups in the match sample. This was probably the the variable that was most different was freestanding emergency department. And so a sizable portion of the non-geriatric EDs were freestanding than the matched geriatric EDs. And so freestanding EDs have been shown to discharge more patients in comparison. That, so that was one potential contributor to why we why we saw what we do as opposed to hospital-based emergency departments. Mm. That's that's a great point because freestanding EDs, there's a much bigger barrier to admission. And this is a great start and a great way to look at how is geriatric ED accreditation moving the needle and making an argument for accrediting. What we ultimately care about, of course, are patient-centered outcomes. Are we getting the diagnosis correct? Are we treating correctly? Are we helping the patient navigate care to the right place? Are we helping them transition care to the right location and have the best possible outcomes. And then from a healthcare standpoint, are we also doing it in an efficient manner so that our resources are not overly stretched or we don't have inadvertently long ED lengths of stay because we're providing all these services in the ED? And then are we doing it in a cost-effective manner? Where do you see going from here in terms of ED outcomes research? What would you want to look at next? Yeah, uh, I think you hit a you hit a the nail on the head with a lot of that right there. I mean, my passion is care transitions, but also sort of patient centered outcomes, patient reported outcomes. So one of the things I like is, are we moving the needle on the things that patients really care about? Not just seventy two hour revisits, not just hospitalizations, because that's what's easy to capture in claims data, but things more like aligned, if anyone's familiar with the four M's framework from the age friendly health system, things like that, that really, that really matter to patients and really capture what they care about. Things like functional status, things like quality of life, things like symptom burden, and, and sort of thinking about how to measure those. So aside from those things, I think, you know, also return on investment of geriatric EDs, I think is going to be critically important sort of going forward, just thinking about the business case at sort of large scale. You know, we mentioned some of those observational studies, those individual site and in intervention studies, but thinking about sort of multi-site, can we sort of do those across the geriatric emergency department collaborative and across other geriatric EDs sort of on a, on a larger scale? I mean, is there is there a role, sort of a rhetorical question, but is there a role for geriatric EDs in new payment models? You know, there's a lot of shift towards value-based care across specialties. What does geriatric emergency care look like integrated within primary care, integrated within hospital medicine, sort of integrated across across the different sort of care points at which our, our patients touch the system. And what does that mean for a, a cost savings at sort of a more population level? And then finally, just methodologically, this was one way to do the study, which I had mentioned, sort of observational, but you know, you had sort of, I think earlier I mentioned maybe about pre-post and sort of thinking about different study designs, thinking about event studies, thinking about pre-post, thinking about difference in difference. I think all these different analyses would answer this question in a slightly different way and maybe have the emergency department be its own comparison, be its own match sample in the, in, the, in the time prior to when it became a geriatric emergency department. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can, you can address this question, but, but I think all need to continually be done. Lots of unanswered questions. And the 4Ms framework is, just to fill folks in, stands for what matters medication, mentation, and mobility. And it's a way of looking at a patient-centered approach. And I think that really is where the two big things in my mind of where we need to demonstrate value are patient-centered outcomes. And then how do you demonstrate a return on investment from the healthcare perspective to then make a financial argument for implementing these changes in care processes, both within a fee-for-service model and in a value-based model? Could not agree more. Absolutely. So Cameron, I, I look forward to reading whatever you do next in this space. 
And I, I think we're at a great place now that we have over 450 accredited EDs in the country that now we can really start looking at that data and getting a better handle on what is the benefit for level one, for level two, for level three EDs. And that way, hopefully helping drive improvements in care around the country. So thank you for being on GEMcast. Thank you, Christine. It's been terrific being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.